<laughs> I wanted to ask you, what's the percentage chance that you would accept a mysterious, if someone sent you a ticket and was like, I'm going to fly you out to England, no, uh, no further details other than I want you to come out here, you're going to meet with me, I'm not going to tell you who I am, and you know, here's a ticket, I'm going to buy it for you. I would say there's like a 20% chance. Really? Yeah, I would think mine's, about it. Mine's a good zero. Good zero, yeah. <laughs> I, I There's just no fucking way. If you wouldn't tell me who you are, I, I've listened to too much true crime. <laughs> I'm going to be fucking eaten. Like, I'm, I'm going to be the main course in a cannibal ritualistic murder. Welcome, friends, to episode 236 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Neil Gaiman's 1989 graphic novel, The Sandman, issues 1 through 10. All right, here we are for The Sandman, uh, one of the most iconic comic book series of all time from everything I'm reading. Uh, it is it is sort of filling in the gaps for me, for Neil Gaiman as an author, because you know, we focused on his prose before now with Coraline, Good Omens, um, and, and now we're getting into the comics, which a lot of people really know him from the comics. Yeah, and in this comic, Sandman, you can see a little bit of Good Omens, you can see a little bit of Coraline, and then this is like sort of entirely its own thing, and I'm just having so much fun reading it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so cool to like finally understand Neil Gaiman like as a whole. And then like, I mean, I still haven't read all of his books or anything, but um, I wanted to, to find out from you, like, have you read any of this before? I haven't, no, but I have heard things about Sandman. Like I was okay. aware of certain elements, but I wasn't super aware of the fact that I, I knew it was a DC property. I knew it kind of took place in the DC universe. I didn't know that in this actual source material of Sandman, we were going to get sort of crossing over of certain like villains and heroes and oh, man i was so surprised when we got like actual cameos of dc characters because yeah i knew it was a dc comic but i guess i didn't realize that meant that it would be in that universe it doesn't always mean that okay so okay i, I didn't know if i should have known that um and like should have expected it but um when i saw that i was i was surprised we'll, we'll get into it there's some specific characters that show up that uh i was pretty excited to see and you've mentioned in the past, like you ha you're not super versed in in the comic book world. No, this is my, my journey in comics. Like I still consider myself a comic book noob. Um, we've only basically I've only read comics that we've covered here, and and like a few outside of it, I guess realistically. But I'm I don't have the background in like Marvel and the the superhero comics that a lot of people have. And that's I I think in my experience people that I knew and growing up. And I think a lot of people get their start in comic books reading superhero stuff. They get drawn in by that. And then they go start seeking more mature adult comics and they spread out from the DC Marvel banners. And they start finding that there's a lot there. There's a lot of really interesting stories. You know, and I think that's part of why I didn't get into comics when I was young is like my perception has always been that I don't even know. It wasn't like it was like subconscious. But like when I thought comics, I thought superheroes. I thought about reading a Spider-Man comic. And I was always just like, yeah, 
eh, I don't really need to do that. I can, I can, you know, I can watch Spider-Man on the, you know, cartoon that I was watching or whatever. Well, and what's awesome is seeing, you know, someone like Gaiman take on a property like Sandman. I know in Marvel, he he wrote like a really famous run for the Eternals. So, like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't even know that. That's it's wild. So, like, it's cool to to get connected to some of these voices and see how they do different stuff, and then pull that into the DC and the superhero stuff at times as well. Eternals, huh? And we have the Endless here. And we have the Eternals there. Yeah. It well, and, and people have pointed out that he this is kind of the stuff that he does really well. Is these like anthropomorphized versions of like either gods or just like concepts that he makes into characters that's right. one of the things that he's kind of famous for and he's definitely doing that here well, um, good omens too right like they're yeah. angels and demons and you know all kinds of stuff in that a lot of similar like overlapping material and and you know we're gonna get into some background stuff about the creation of this because uh, i think it is really fascinating i'm starting to wonder about his like religious upbringing and like well i actually can talk to you about a little bit of that i i found some but before we do all that, just a little bit of uh, housekeeping first. I'm going to be in Chicago in the first week of September for Worldcon, um, which is a big genre uh, sci-fi fantasy convention, maybe the biggest, that's held yearly. It moves around the world. This year it is in America. Uh, it is in Chicago. And for the first time ever, I'm going to be on programming. Um, I can't officially announce what panels uh, I will be on. Um, and I t- tentatively do have a reading for my uh, story that's in Reckoning. Um, so super excited about that. Like I said, the schedule is still in flux. I can't like officially announce any of that yet. But if you are anywhere near Chicago <laughs> or if you're going to Worldcon already, like definitely come say hi. Um, come check out any of the panels I'm on. Um, and I'll talk about it more once I have an official schedule. Uh, very exciting. Um, that's So that's one piece of news. Uh, the other piece of news is that I recently, uh, and I have like a Twitter thread about this, kind of explaining it in more detail, and I talked about it on our Patreon in our recent episode we recorded, but I recently finished my underwater sci-fi novel that I've been working on for years, and uh, when I say finished, I don't mean it's done and ready to be read. I mean that I, I finished the draft of it that, that has been eluding me for a long time, and I'm going to be doing some revision now. I have some beta readers lined up, so there's still some some stuff that has to happen before I can even start querying agents. But it's an important step along the way, and I'm excited about it. And I talked to you in more in depth uh, about that on our Patreon. Yeah, congrats again. It's super exciting. I'm ex- I can't wait to read it one day eventually. But uh, yeah, man, I'm excited for you to read it too. For now, like it's a big stepping stone for you in getting it published. Well, I will be talking about that. I'm sure more as everything along the way starts to play out, and you know, I'll have updates. So if you're curious about that at all, also follow me on social media where I'll be talking about that kind of stuff at Luminous Luke on Twitter. Um, okay, so let's move back into the topic at hand, though. What were your what was your general impression reading these first 10 issues? I I absolutely blown away. Um, I you know, I like Gaiman a lot. I like anything I've read of his I've, I've loved so far. And Good Omens continues to be one of my favorite things we've read for the podcast, just because the, the humor in it. And yeah, some of it, you know, Terry Pratchett and, and him as collaboration. I think a lot of it's Terry Pratchett. <laughs> but right, yeah, I think yeah. there's a good uh, like a good balance of collaboration there. But just I still feel his voice in that. And yeah. I really love that. And so getting to this, um, it start these first 10 issues kind of feel gamified storytelling in like at least for the first little bit we get like some story of this guy i don't want to give too many specifics but basically it's like this guy and he needs to get these things and even though it's kind of that kind of storytelling 
I found it to be really compelling because of the way that he was telling it and the world that he was building around it. Yeah. I think this story sort of invaded my mind like a lot of Gaiman's other stories that we've read for the podcast have. And in the way that like when I'm not reading it, I'm thinking about it a lot. Yeah, I just couldn't. I, I felt like I couldn't put it down. I burned through it so quick. And then the medium of comics, like I'm always very into because it's, like, it's so visual. And the people that are collaborating with Gaiman, um, you know, there's like Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones, the third and Kelly Jones on my on the cover of my novel. That's whose credit is some of the artists. Um, it's amazing. It's just it looks incredible. And I, 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 you know, was thinking about a lot about the time period it was coming out, like it late 80s, early 90s and like how how all of it was kind of speaking to other like 80s and 90s comics I've read and in, in a way, but sort of a commentary at times as well. And then getting to the end of the 10 chapters, I felt like we were just scratching the surface and we were starting the beginnings of like what would become like the greater sort of idea of what this property is going to be about, which is some of the stuff that I've heard in passing, which is more so it's like some commentary on like storytelling and commentary on like what dreams how like the correlation between the two things, dreams and storytelling. And, and like, you know, I, without telling without saying any specifics right now. I think chapter eight or nine was just like entirely almost standalone and just like getting these like one-off stories that are definitely tying into the larger universe of this. Uh, I just find it to be so, so fascinating and, and enthralling. Like I'm just so sucked into it right now. So I can't wait to read more. I'm right there with you, man. This is so up my alley. Um, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm like, there's an alternate universe Luke out there who read Sandman when I, when I was like, I don't know, 16 this would have been my I got this would have become my whole life when I read, right. if I had read that like right. it's 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 so up my alley and like I'm loving it man it's got the perfect amount of like emo tones to super it. emo uh like I feel like uh Morpheus our main character aka dream aka a million other names he's like this goth like icon and and I love it um and this this the comic itself has this really cool horror element to it that I wasn't expecting I didn't know how dark and mature and um i don't know intense but also like it's this beautiful fantasy at the same time and it's it's larger than life and we're talking about literal dreamscapes and gods and magic and it's so cool to see that but also this super dark element um the way these two things come together is is amazing to me i didn't know that that was what it was like um and and man i'm loving it so yeah i'm right there with you absolutely my shit excited to talk about it specifically but you mentioned the way that it's like it's very dreamlike you know we're telling stories about dreams and i love the way that like the paneling in the in the actual comic matches that in the way yeah. that like sometimes it'll shift really creative in, in weird ways that that don't that seem disjointed or something in in a way that a dream might also feel yeah i was having trouble because i've talked in the past about how i think there's like a a language for how to read a comic that people in like over time you just get experience reading comics and you start to learn that and that was something I always found a little bit um not off-putting but just like un- not a- not as approachable about comics is that I would pick one up and I'd kind of get confused about what I was supposed to read in what order and I'm someone who like if I if I feel like I'm not doing something the right way I get frustrated Mm-hmm. And I would I would start to try and read a comic and I'd start feeling like, ah, am I supposed to read this box before I read this box? Or like, I don't know. And then I'd get frustrated. And then sometimes that would be off-putting to me, whereas I pick up a novel and I know how to read that, right? Yeah. Did um, you feel that here? 
a little bit here and there. Um, but then I kind of started getting back into the flow that I had for Watchmen and for some of the other comics that we've covered. And I realized that like often, not every time, but usually whatever I intuitively think is probably where I should go next tends to be where I should go yeah. next. The artist literally tries to create something that your eye will go to first. Right. And there, so there, like, there are times where I was it was harder to figure out, but I think you're right. Like some of that feels intentional because it creates a little bit of like that untethered feeling of yeah. in time even within the story. One of the one of the ones that stands out to me because it's near the end of the 10 chapters is we have this subject who's sleeping and then slowly we're, we're watching this is on the left side of the page. We're going down the left side of the page and then eventually it starts to kind of turn and then you have to turn your book sideways. That was, that was absolutely incredible. I was I was going to talk about when we got to the issue, but like, yeah, uh, unbelievable. I, I don't know. I had never... Is that something you've seen before? I've never seen anything like that before. I've seen people play with that for sure before. But, I mean, it's a really great example. I love that it, it gradually turned us. Yeah. And then it went on like that the entire time we were in the dream. And then when it came back to quote-unquote reality, we flip back to the regular orientation. Such a fun way to play with the form and something you, like, don't do in prose. And I didn't realize how I was missing out on something that comics can do that, that just other art forms can't do. Very, very cool. It reminded me a little bit of filmmaking, like in the way, like you, we've talked about the, what is it, the Dutch angle where it's stuff that gets all skewed. It felt kind of like we were in that skewed angle for a while and then we came back. Yeah. yeah it was just really cool. Loved it. So I, I always find that kind of creativity just, I mean, that's so much fun, right? Like yeah. to, to panel everything out like that. And you'll see like manga and comics, tons of, you know, the visual medium of storytelling in that way. They tend to, things flow together in ways that you like they lay out their page and they're still getting you the information you need and making you look at the most important things first and that's something that just like blows my mind that somebody can sit down and like sort of like plan out these you can have so much fun with it right like we, we i remember all the time talking about that when we were covering watchmen and then um like scott pilgrim i felt like brian lee o'malley uh, like that had so many fun inventive ways to play with how you read it and and you can you can have so much fun with uh, the method of telling the story, in a, you know, and, and breaking the form that you've just set up previously. Now, all of a sudden, you can totally break it in a different way and and to great effect. Right. And you get the splash pages that could go across like an entire two page uh, spread. open two page spread. Like all of a sudden, like that has so much power. I don't know. That's, that's and then really think cool. about being someone like Neil Gaiman, bringing this written story that he's writing and then collaborating with somebody who's like bringing it to life in this way and the way that like maybe he suggests something and they you know work together with that yeah. it's just such an amazing meeting and, and I'll, I'll hit on all the artists but like i, I love right. this art style and it geez i don't know I've, I've liked a lot of the art styles that we've covered but this might yeah. be my favorite like it's up there for sure and what's crazy is like i felt like the first few chapters were a little rough but there were like intentional reasons for that and it sort of evolved over just 10 issues well some some stuff changed uh different one guy ended up leaving i think at issue five and got replaced by somebody else so we could that, that might have affected it um hmm. one thing i absolutely love just if we're talking about little details whenever uh morpheus or dream speaks his boxes are in black with white so lettering. Good. It's so cool. Like, it's first off, it really helps you figure out who it is. But it's so goth, and it fits his character so well. <laughs> and they use the the you know his skin is basically white, and they use often they use the white from the page to sort of evoke that with like black features and stuff on his face, and it's just like yeah, goth icon man. He's the best. <laughs> uh, okay, so I think let's start 
with Gaiman. So we've talked about Gaiman multiple times now on the podcast, but I can't remember talking about his like early life much. So I want to touch on him first a little bit. And then when we get to the creation of Sandman, then I'll switch over and talk about the background behind it as a comic. Gaiman was born in 1960 uh, to a Polish and Jewish family. The Gaimans moved in 1965 to West Sussex town of East Grinstead, where his parents studied Dianetics at the Scientology Center in the town. One of Gaiman's sisters still works for the Church of Scientology in Los Angeles. His other sister, uh, Lizzie, has said most of our social activities were involved with Scientology or our Jewish family. It would get very confusing when people would ask my religion as a kid. I'd say I'm a Jewish Scientologist. Gaiman says that he is not a Scientologist and that, like Judaism, Scientology is his family's religion. About his personal views, Gaiman has stated, I think we can say that God exists in the DC universe. I would not stand up and beat the drum for the existence of God in this universe. I don't know. I think there's probably a 50-50 chance. It doesn't really matter to me. 50-50 <laughs> chance is pretty high, man. Like, but also, just I love the idea of like, eh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> What's well, so interesting that, that like, I mean, hell as an idea is is you know interesting for storytelling but it just has shown up in this and good omens now at this point and i guess it's just like everybody who's mortal is going to grapple with the idea of death so you have to be thinking about these kinds of things in a, in a way it kind of w- makes sense to me that he like has this upbringing he's he he is both in a, pl- a, a headspace where this is real but also in this scientology headspace where a very different set of beliefs and then pulling back from both of it because there is a you have to be a little bit, you know, like uh, uh, ready to to break the norms and do things that other people are going to, you know, get upset about if you're going to write something like this. Right. Like because it's it's like blasphemy in some sense to, to some people's eyes. So you have to be willing to do that. Yet you have to also like kind of believe in it enough to respect it and to even care about it. Right. Like if you if you weren't raised in it and you don't know about it and you don't care about it, you're probably not going to write anything like this. So it's like it puts him in this like really interesting place. Yeah, because I, I could see it being a situation where you're raised in it and you sort of rebel against it and want to tell stories like this. Yeah, and I know? think that's that's probably the case for him a little bit. Um, so at the age of four, he was able to read and um, he has he has listed a bunch of things as being really influential for him. Um, that includes uh, The Lord of the Rings. That includes C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll is one of his childhood favorites. Uh, he also enjoyed Batman comics as a, as a child. So that was maybe his early introduction to comics. He then later would go on to read Alan Moore, uh, specifically, I think the 1984, uh, Swamp Thing run, I guess with, with Alan Moore. And that was incredibly influential on him and his style that he wanted to, to go with. So in this period when he's when he's a young uh, kind of going through college, he, he studied journalism and he started working in journalism in the industry. And he, I think he said that he wanted to start making connections so that he could get into it. And he knew that was something he knew he wanted to do. Um, and he became friends with Alan Moore and he started writing his first comic books after picking up Miracle Men after uh, Moore finished his run on the series. Gaiman and artist Mark Buckingham collaborated on several issues of the series before its publisher collapsed, leaving the series unfinished. His first published comic strips were four short future shocks for 2000 AD and 1986 and 87. He wrote three graphic novels with his favorite collaborator and longtime friend Dave McKean, 
violent cases, signal to noise, and the tragical comedy or comical tragedy of Mr. Punch. Impressed with his work, DC Comics hired him in February of 1987, and he wrote the limited series Black Orchid. Karen Berger, who would later become head of DC Comics Vertigo, read Black Orchid and offered Gaiman a job to rewrite an old character, the Sandman, but to put his own spin on him. So backing up a little bit, in 1984, he would write his first book, which would be a biography of the band Duran Duran, um, as well as uh, Ghastly Beyond Belief, which was a book of quotations. Even though Gaiman thought he had done a terrible job, the book's first edition sold out very quickly. When he went to relinquish his, his rights to his books, he discovered the publisher had gone bankrupt. After this, he was offered a job by Penthouse, but he refused the offer. So, okay, so that's like his sort of uh, uh, prose early beginnings, right? And then in the late 1980s, he wrote Don't Panic, the official Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion in what he calls classic English humor style. He's a big fan of Monty Python. That's what I read. Me too. So Douglas Adams, another connection to the podcast. We may have mentioned something about Neil Gaiman doing this. So what's awesome about this that I read is that Terry Pratchett read the companion piece to Hitchhiker's Guide. And that's what he liked so much to where he decided to reach out to Gaiman and talk about collaboration. I, I Or he met him and they, they talked about collaboration. So we end up getting good omens because of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion that uh, Neil Gaiman wrote. They start good omens in like 88. So he's writing good omens at the same time he's developing Sandman. This is happening at the same time, which is incredible. I also love that like those those sensibilities like so, speak to me so much like the people he's talking about the people he respects Alan Moore and your Monty Python and like the the classic British sort of humor of of a Douglas Adams like when we read Hitchhiker's Guide like that's my that's my shit I love that that style of comedic meticulous writing you know yeah I, I mean I t- I'm totally with you I love this stuff super clever stuff yeah yeah dry humor like I don't know it's, it's really good. So let's focus on now we're at The Sandman. So The Sandman is a comic book written by Neil Gaiman, published by DC Comics. Its artists include Sam Keith, Mike Dringenberg, Jill Thompson, Sean McManus, Mark Hempel, Brian Talbot, and Michael Zuli, with lettering by Todd Klein and covers by Dave McKean. The original series ran for 75 issues from January of 1989 to March of 1996. So a seven-year run. Critically acclaimed, The Sandman was one of the first few graphic novels to ever be on the New York Times bestseller list, along with Mouse, Watchmen, and The Dark Knight Returns. All amazing. Yeah, Mouse, by the way, I did read when I was in college. Absolutely incredible. I know there was a whole thing about it being banned recently, which led to a huge resurgence. A lot of people went and checked it out. Such a good series and like un- unflinching yeah. sort of like art spiegelman like legend for doing that it's so it's so good um highly recommend you know it's very different than this but uh you know extremely good in its own right anyway um it was one of five graphic novels to make entertainment weekly's 100 breast reads from 1983 to, to 2008 ranking in at number 46 so that's across all mediums the series has exerted considerable influence over the fantasy genre and graphic novel medium since its publication and is often regarded as one of the greatest graphic novels of all time i gotta know the influence of the original i don't know much about the original sandman so i want to know like did he read it growing up and stuff like did you find all this uh 
I yes, I assume he. I, I didn't re- specifically read that like, about him reading it, but I know that he read early Batman and DC comics, so I assume he did. Um, so the creation of the Sandman it grew out of a proposal by Neil Gaiman to revive the 1974 to 1976 series The Sandman, which was illustrated by Jack Kirby. So he he wanted to revive it. So he had read it because it was like, this is something he wanted to do. Gaiman mentioned his treatment in passing to Karen Berger, which we've already talked about. So weeks later, Berger asked Gaiman if he was still interested in doing a Sandman series. And Gaiman recalled, I said, um, yes, yes, definitely. What's the catch? And she said, there's only one. We'd like a new Sandman. Keep the name, but the rest is up to you. That's what I was getting out of it is that I didn't, I thought that this was a very Gaiman like sort of character so for him to have existed i was wondering like what that would have looked like before gaiman it's crazy to think about the influence of jack kirby on comics too i mean from marvel and dc like one of the most recognizable styles one of the most influential ever it's it's and then you know it's cool that that gaiman had the opportunity to sort of revive a character and and give new life to a character like that yeah it completely changed him, but 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 still, yeah. So Gaiman crafted the new character from an initial image of, quote, a man, young, pale, and naked, imprisoned in a tiny cell, waiting until his captors passed away, deathly thin, with long, dark hair and strange eyes. Now, I love this little note. Gaiman patterned the character's black attire on a print of a Japanese kimono, as well as a, on his own wardrobe. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Which I totally like. I was laughing because, like, if you look at pictures of Gaiman, especially from this time, it looks like. I mean, he he totally looks like him and 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 Dream are like the same person. <laughs> like he right. he looks so much like this, just you know, in mortal form. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm for it. It's it's super cool. I mean, he's like, I'm gonna make this character. He's gonna look kind of like me. I'm gonna have him wear clothes similar to mine. But he's also, uh, you know, it's, it fits the style of that time period. And then also, like, just see, everybody loves that style, and still has kind of. It's like a grunge goth. Well, and people always shit on the idea of quote unquote self insert characters. Yeah. Um, but we've seen so many of them work really well. It's like you can you can do self inserts if you do something interesting with them, you know. And and you know, you look at like Stephen King, like he basically does self inserts all the time with these writer characters. But so many of them are legends. Like people love those stories, and just the the fact that uh, Morpheus in some way was inspired by probably like Gaiman's own self, that's fine. You know what I mean? Like the character's still really cool. People like stories about storytellers. They like films about filmmakers and and authors and and artists in the industry like to explore their industries too. So it's a lot of that going on. So one cool thing I saw was that uh, the cover artist McKean approaches towards the comic book covers was unconventional and he convinced Berger that the series protagonist did not need to appear on every cover. So apparently that was kind of a new thing. And like looking at the covers for these things, they are very like the art style is very different from what you see inside. Sometimes, yeah, they're you know, you can't even tell that it's a Sandman comic. But apparently these are like super iconic covers for that reason. It really made it stand out. Yeah. I mean, it has to have some blend of like photography to it because or, or like hyper realism yeah, images know, and maybe. stuff in the way that it's like the dreamlike quality of them. too. I, like, I can see why you would say that with the way it looks that way. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then just adding in the layers, and I noticed many times there's like almost like wispy smoke and stuff. That if you look at it long enough, it's almost like a Rorschach test where you're like, "What are you seeing in this smoke right now?" Kind of thing. Uh, okay, so the debut issue of the Sandman went on sale actually in 1988, but it's cover dated to 1989. Um, Gaiman described his early issues as quote awkward, 
since he, as well as Keith, Dringenberg, and Bush had never worked on a regular series before. Keith quit after the fifth issue, and he was replaced by Dringenberg as penciler, who was in turn replaced by Malcolm Jones as inker. Uh, so, so there was some changeover there, and especially after the fifth issue. Um, it's also just wild to me, they, like what it just said there. He had never, they'd never worked on like a series before, not like this, right? This is, he's, he was hired by DC in, what did I say, like 86? I forget, like 80, 87? And here we are at 88, this is coming out, and he's starting Sandman, which, you know, is like one of the greatest uh, uh, graphic novels of all time. So right out of the gates, really. I mean, I know I said he had worked on some other stuff here or there, but when he's actually given, like, the creative control to do his own thing and create a character, like, this is what happens. That's amazing. Yeah. And it also takes some, like, a fresh take, right? Like, we're saying a lot of the things were unconventional for the time. He's getting to, like, break the mold, do a lot of new things. So, you know, all of that is huge. And then, yeah, you get Gaiman at the helm. Like, he's sort of a unique figure in writing. Like, he, he has his own style to an extent that you can always tell it's him. At least I can. It's super influential, right? So there's been many, right. many people who've who look to him as their inspiration and, and totally. you know, try and model their stuff after him. So speaking of the influence of this... Sandman became a cult classic success for DC Comics uh, right out of the gates, attracted an audience unlike that of mainstream comics. Much of the readership was female, many were in their 20s, and many read no other comics at all. Uh, comics historian Les Daniels called Gaiman's work astonishing and noted that the Sandman was a mixture of fantasy, horror, and ironic humor such as comic books had never seen before. DC Comics writer and executive Paul Levitz observed that The Sandman became the first extraordinary success as a series of graphic novel collections, reaching out and converting new readers to the medium, particularly young women on college campuses, and making Neil Gaiman himself into an iconic cultural figure. That's awesome. You know, and like, I didn't realize that it had this like big female audience early on. Um, I mean, probably to this day still does, but um, I can see why. I mean, like, it's it's, it's got some awesome women characters like if you're into that sort of like goth subculture i'm sure you know you love dream and morpheus is just like again he's an icon so it, there's just a lot to like there and yeah i i totally get that it would pull in you know as as i was just talking about you're not your atypical comic book readers right who maybe don't even read other comics at all find something to love here i definitely yeah, i totally see it i think it was just so fresh for the for the medium and i think uh there, there, there are these stories that sort of transcend the medium as well, where it like it turns people into comic book readers, or it turns people into manga readers, or movie watchers, or you know book readers. Like there's some things that just like stand out and then pull people in, and this, this is one of them. Yeah, totally, man. Okay, so th th there's so much, but I, I think I'm gonna leave it there for background for the Sandman, and then I think we just jump right into issue one. Um, I'm going to read just like a brief synopsis of each issue, and then we can just react to it, talk about it. So issue one is called Sleep of the Just. A group of magic-invoking men seeking immortality use a spell to capture death, but instead they get its younger brother, Dream. This leads to 70 years, keeping him entrapped while the world suffers greatly from these years without sleep or with unwaking sleep. But finally, Dream escapes, and he's looking for revenge. 
Okay, that's the synopsis I have. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that does sum it up. What was your take on this opening and, and uh, your first introduction to Sandman? I had no idea how the story started. I had no idea sort of the arc of the story or anything like that. And to get this right out the gate, I was like, this is so cool. You introduce a character, a cult is like trapping this like entity. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm invested in this. Like the order of ancient mysteries or something like that. Yeah. I had no idea, no way of knowing like how he's getting out. I assumed he was very powerful. And we're seeing the first time we see him, it's like a young, somewhat normal looking person. He had glinty eyes. And then as time goes on, they start. The first time we see him, he's this wild helmet on, which like you're not clear if that's a helmet or if that's like his head. Yeah, first, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I didn't know if it was like a transformation yeah. or something else like that. But uh, eventually that's popped off. First time we see his face, he just looks like a young man yeah. or whatever, normal. Although I, his age, his age changes, though, because at times he looks a lot older. That was one right. thing I have noticed. That, like, the different times you draw him, he appears to be almost different ages, which makes sense for sort of an ageless. Yeah, well, and he seemingly can become anything he wants. Uh, my My point being, we see this person who looks like powerful and somewhat fresh but he's like naked they've taken everything from him and he's like trapped in this orb and then we get tons of time just passes by and these decades are going by i thought this was going to be a period piece for a little while i was like oh is it going to be like a 19 early 1900s sort of story and we're flying by decades there his captors are getting older it's yeah just, he just waits him out he's like i'll just wait for him to die eventually and then eventually you know it's been 70 years or whatever and his face is like distorted and it's like longer and super gaunt and his hair is all crazy. Yeah. And that's sort of like the look of what Sandman is for the f- this first like five or six chapters, I would say. Yeah. Um, and he looks like until he sort of regains, spoiler, he regains his powers. <laughs> um, well, we're going to spoil each issue as we move through it. Just be aware. <laughs> but until that point, he sort of looks like this gaunt figure. Yeah. And it wasn't what I like, you know, I look at the cover of my of my version here and he looks like young and uh, what you would expect gotcha. and then like so this was a kind of jarring experience for me i'm like oh interesting but then i get used to it and then just in time for it to change but anyway i, I just love the storytelling here the, they're like the captors are like passing him down like generation to generation it's the son of the the guy the original guy who captures him who ends up himself getting super old and i think at one point his wheelchair disturbs the circle that it like binds the the uh you know binds dream into this orb and that's how he's able to he forces one of the guards because there's these two guards in there and uh, one of them's reading stephen king's it by the way makes a cameo in this i did not realize that wow you didn't see that yeah no he's totally reading stephen king's it you could see it on the like the title on the book he's reading that's awesome i didn't know yeah um so one of the guards and he for he like is able to make them fall asleep and the the guard who falls asleep is dreaming of being uh, at this like beach volleyball game and he's like passed out in the sand and uh morpheus goes into the dream of the guard who he put to sleep and takes a handful of the sand from the volleyball like uh beach volleyball area comes back into the real world fakes like he's like dying or something so they open up the thing uh the uh, orb to let him out this like this glass orb that he's being imprisoned in and he blows the sand that he gathered from the man's dream at all of all the guards to put them all to sleep so that immediately introduces this dream walking reality bending thing right like he went into somebody's dream grabbed sand and pulled it out into our world and then used it so I thought that was really cool, like an yeah. introduction to his powers. And the way that it's represented, too, in the, in the in the 
actual comic is like it looks really cool yeah. like he's literally like reaching in and then we see him with it and he's like sort of curled the up. way he like blows it and it, i yeah. don't know it's just drawn in such a cool way it's very cool um and then uh so he the first like really fucked up thing i guess that happens is he he uh he does not have mercy for this guy who's who's the son of the guy who originally captured him i mean in his defense because this guy kept him imprisoned uh, and didn't right, let him go right. but he inflicts something on him called eternal waking and uh, this is pretty, pretty uh, metal. <laughs> it's pretty, essentially he's he's sleeping. He starts having a nightmare, and then he wakes up to escape the nightmare. And he uh, will start saying like, "Oh shit, I had this wild nightmare," and he'll start talking to somebody. And then that person will like turn into like a fucking skeleton, or their face will melt. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah and melt. and you realize that not you haven't escaped the nightmare. You only woke up into a new nightmare. And then he'll go, oh, fuck, and he'll fall, and he'll, like, wake up again, and then he'll once again have the same experience. So he's eternally waking up to escape a nightmare, but every time that happens, he's not actually awake. He's actually in another nightmare. That's pretty dark. It's awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. And and something else from this chapter is he, we don't get his perspective until he breaks out. So Or, or maybe we get, like, a, a bubble of his thoughts every now and yeah, again. Yeah, every now and then we see the black text and, like... I, that's one thing that, again, I had to, like, kind of learn, like, when is it thoughts versus something people say? And it's just, yeah. like, has to do with a subtle difference in the way the box, usually yeah. the box looks. If the box is, like, very squared off, some it's, of the time you can think it's narration yeah. or... It's narration or internal thoughts. Yeah. And, and like, that's not something that I intuitively realized, it, you know, right away. But I, I the more I read it, the more I got... So, like, it took me a little bit to kind of get momentum in the series, but after a few issues, I really hit my stride and I blew through like five or six in a row last night as I was finishing this thing. Um, and like you said, it was just like, man, I was so into it. Like I, I was I was loving it. And I, I remember thinking like I, I got to tell other people to read this thing who, who I know haven't because I'm like, this is really good. And especially people who don't read comics. It feels like a great introduction to comics, too. Honestly. For sure. Yeah. And it opens up like, so this chapter ends and he sort of is like, all right, I got, I, I, I'm out of here. I got to go get my things they, they stole from me back. So there's His tools, I think he calls it. Yeah. Okay. And that moves into issue number two, which is called Imperfect Hosts. So Morpheus, the king of dreams, gets reacquainted with his home realm of the dreaming and the colorful characters who populate it, including Cain, Abel, and Lucian, the librarian. He also discovers how much his absence has affected the universe in the time since he was imprisoned. Okay, so we get the introduction of Cain and Abel here, which are really interesting characters that I'm sure we're going to get more stuff with later, but like, like a strange bit of storytelling is is, is um, we know from the Bible, right? Like the, the famously Cain kills Abel, right? That's the way I it goes. So. Yeah, and, and um, so we get these brothers who have this weird relationship. They seem super friendly, yet there's this like lurking sense of murder and then, of course, that does come to pass, and like, it seems like or he like eternally kills him over and over again, or something, something like that. But it, we we come to find that he's this is like in dreams, Morpheus's world, the dream world. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, the first time we see this too, it's like really cool. Like he starts, he's you see the external of this like castle house thing that they're in, and there's all these like floating pieces of rock. And it's 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 just super bizarre looking. And again, this is one of the reasons why I love the art style. Um, right. And then like his coat, I fucking love his coat. Oh, it's right? so good. It's yeah. like this. He has this black long raiment, this cloak looking thing, or this coat. 
and yet the the hem of it will transform and it'll look like flames or it'll look like faces. Usually gets this kind of golden fiery color to it and it always pops so much. W- I absolutely love it. At one point in the story somebody like thinks they see him and they like reflect and they're like oh he, it was like he was wearing something but it was like he was wearing the night or something yeah. so he was like, almost wearing you know <laughs> sleep and night and the yeah. night sky like it's it's really and it's it as depth to it too when you look yeah. into like the part that like would be facing his back when he whenever it flaps open a little bit you can like see into it yeah. and it's like looks like it has like galaxies of depth or something yeah. it's crazy well in that same description i think they say that his eyes had stars in them or something and often when we see his eyes they do the thing where they have this like four pointed light coming out of them like they are stars themselves and they'll be in the they'll be shrouded in darkness and yet glimmering like that it always looks so freaking cool so yeah i mean we also we also meet uh lucian who's this like weird librarian character um he's he's finding out that the his world the dreaming and his his like castle has has decayed over time and fallen into disrepair, and he's kind of shocked and surprised to see that. But um, even though he didn't care, like he just waited it out, like didn't really care. The world moved on without him, and like his own world moved on without him, and like there's been sort of repercussions, I think, for for being trapped like this. Right. My favorite part about this chapter is uh, we get what has to be a Macbeth reference with the three witches. <laughs> the Hecate, the, the the three, yeah, these three witches, and I definitely thought of Macbeth when I saw them. I'm like, holy shit, I think it's the same basic characters, right? It, I gotta be. And he's so he's referencing so much of like Greek mythology and like all these other mythologies and pulling them together. There's hell. He's referencing our projects. <laughs> right, right. Hell is in there and, and like, we'll get to this soon, but like, you know, Lucifer's there, like, Beelzebub is there. So like he's like yeah. blending all these different mythos, I feel like, together. Yeah. So cool. And one of the things I loved about them, there was this sequence where he asked, I think he like asked them what their names are or something. And like you could tell they, they're like shifting. And one of the ways they show this, I thought was so clever. Um, one of the three is holding this like little like creature, starts to eat it. And in the next panel, it's the other one. And it's not the one that's talking. So like your your focus is on the one that's talking. But if you look behind it in the in the background, a different one of the three is holding the thing and about to eat it. And then in the third panel, again, not the one who's talking, the third one now has swapped, and the third one is the one who's like fin- like swallowing it. So just over the course of eating this one thing, it's all three of them switching forms. And it shows you how they are just like going in and out of, of they're like they're like one being, even though they, they look like three. And they're like the fates. They give like yeah. one question kind of thing. You get one question, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Really. So he asks questions about his three items, his helmet, his ruby, and his bag, his pouch, his pouch yeah, of sand. Yeah, pouch of sand, yeah. They give him some information. And these. this is where I was like, holy shit. Because it was like... It was like the pouch is with somebody named Constantine. Yeah, when I it's with this, some human named John Constantine, and I'm like, what? <laughs> and then, and then the next one, it was like, it's in hell. It's or in hell with a demon. And you're like, holy. And so, and then the third one was like, is with the Justice League, and we see Batman. Yeah, and you're like, the Justice, the and we see Batman. <laughs> and so, like, I was like, holy shit, we're going into the DC universe, like yeah. right away. I mean, John Constantine fits this so well. Like, the, like yeah. I love the idea of, and, and like his stuff was really cool. We're getting to that, but yeah, that's the next issue. So let's move into that. So issue number three is called "Dream a Little Dream of Me." John Constantine of the Hellblazer franchise does a crossover in this issue and helps Morpheus track a pouch of powerful sand that has found its way into the possession of Constantine's old flame. 
Okay, so uh, that's basically it. And this this issue is the first time where we kind of get like, it's really told from someone else's perspective. It's told from Constantine's perspective. You could argue the first one was not his perspective. It was kind of the family's perspective. That's true, perspective. yeah. I guess the second one was the one where it was like we were really in in uh, Dream's perspective. But yeah, here we move to Constantine. And it's so cool because it's this, char- this established character. I've never read about him in comics, but I know that he's different than the Constantine that is in the Keanu Reeves movie, which is my main exposure to him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is very different, but I knew that, like, people said... People have talked about how this this is how he is in the comics, right? Yeah, v- British for yeah, one, very um, British. <laughs> it, it's such a you know, it's if you've ever watched, I know for I know you've we've talked in the past, you've seen Supernatural, like Supernatural, yep. something like that is drawing so much on on a show on something like John Constantine. We'll talk about this probably next week when we talk about the adaptation. But for a while, Kripke, who created Supernatural, was attached to do a Sandman adaptation. Nice. So, wow. so the, the, it has gone through, and I'm sure this is something you'll look into and we'll talk about, but it has gone through a lot of different hands and there's been a lot of different attempts at adapting this. Um, but you mentioned Supernatural, so I had to shout that out. Yeah. So it, that, that that kind of sh- chasing after magical entities and dealing with it as a human in ways, but then also having connections to, you know, the devil or, or like, you know, different weird rituals and things like, like Constantine is an awesome character, but um it's it was it was very cool to see him and I love the adventure they go on. It gets really weird when they get to the house and he like there he's like this house has been taken over by dreams basically. Like this isn't a safe place for you and Constantine's like we're going in. When he goes into that room and it's just covered in goo <laughs> and then he fl- he flicks the light on and it's like yeah, covered in goo and then he like falls from the sky immediately after that. Yeah, yeah, Constantine, yeah, he's like having a dream and then and then uh, Morpheus has to pull him out of it. But then he's like I think it's alive. So that was like almost like a Junji Ito moment for me where it's like the idea of just like a living goo. <laughs> like, I don't know. Well, like, I think it was the husband had been turned into this. Turned goo. into it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a person. Or the, the, I don't know if it was the husband or who it was, but some way up. Some, father one of the or somebody. Father. I think it was the father. Yeah. yeah. Um, and anyway, they end up eventually finding this woman, but she's like old and decrepit now and um, tortured. We get the sense that she was a like a recovering drug addict of some kind or, or was dealing with addiction. Maybe, but also I think she was one of the dreamer, like people who couldn't sleep or something like it wasn't when they were because they would flash and show different people who were affected by this, like either inability to sleep or this sleep where you're asleep for like 10 years and you only wake up twice throughout that entire period because of dream or morpheus being captured like all of his power his his job is to take care of people's dreams and give them good dreams and bad dreams and all these different things well and this character and then we also later see another dr destiny character who like the the lack of sleep or oversleep like these things like really fuck with people (laughs) for sure i mean we see uh, we're gonna have to broach that subject but the final chapter that we got to um, deals with a character who was asleep for 50, 60 yeah. years or whatever. And she's actually introduced really early on. Unity Kincaid, who is actually introduced in one of these early issues when it lists several different characters who are afflicted by this like long sleep. Um, and, you know, she ends up becoming important. I think obviously going forward in the series, but uh, later, I think issue 10, we'll, we'll get to. One thing I wanted to shout out here is that this is the first time where we see Arkham Asylum uh, gets gets kind of sort of name dropped and we see a little bit here. I think we're first introduced to the idea of this Dr. D character, Dr. Destiny um, in this issue. And I love that he's starting to set up stuff that's going to happen later. And I guess he, he wrote he wrote the entire Preludes and Nocturnes, which is one through eight, all in one go. 
And so you can do that, I guess. Like you can start setting up stuff that's going to happen later. Well, it it also felt like he could have just done like if it if it hadn't been as well received or whatever, you could just shape the story there. Eight eight issues, limited run, and like it was a satisfying go of it. And then like clearly it was popular enough to. Keep I don't know how you don't fucking look at this and go, "This is going to be, <laughs> this yeah. is going to be big." Man, what? A, yeah, you just got you got the you got this team together who's put who's making something amazing. But at the end of that, he is able to get back his his little bag of you know, dream dust. <laughs> and then we're going, he says like, where are you going to go next? And he says, I'm going to hell. And he's like, yeah, aren't we all buddy or something like that? And then, and then he disappears. And then literally the next issue is called a hope in hell. Uh, still tracking his objects of power. Morpheus travels to hell itself in search of his helmet. Uh, it seems it has fallen into the hands of a higher demon. And there's a realm of devils standing between Morpheus and his property. Okay. So we also, meet lucifer here which is uh you know a very iconic character i don't know if he like created the character as they are here but i know that lucifer is a character that has gone on to i think inspire the show lucifer that is out now like i've never seen it but a lot of people do swear by it they like it a lot um and apparently that is basically neil gaiman's lucifer um but then that's what i've heard but isn't yeah, but then also like Gwendolyn Christie is going to play Lucifer in this adaptation. So, so you know, different. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's what I've heard. I, I, the show doesn't seem like a Gaiman-esque a- adaptation at all, but maybe something about the character makes people say that it is that like that. Yeah. Wow. I don't know. I'm not sure. But yeah, hell was super cool, man. <laughs> like going into hell, he goes yeah. through the gates of hell. It's like the naked gates or something. There's all these like deformed naked bodies just like in piles and, and like going up the sides of the gate itself. He, he like is sort of talking with Lucifer and is like, I know you rule hell, like find the demon and give me my helmet back. And then, and then Lucifer is like, well, actually we've kind of split it up between Azazel, Beezlebub and myself now. Like we sort of all rule over hell. So then they like summon Azazel and, and Beelzebub. And then they like, we see like this crazy, like, str- like, castle thing and it's so cool like that you see this mutual respect as he's like himself this god-like entity so there's like a respect from lucifer well it seems like it to be to be honest it seems like lucifer and this is just me guessing it seems like lucifer is lesser than than dream maybe yeah these 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 endless are older than the gods i think i saw somewhere so i don't know yeah yeah and it seems like this is going to be a character that's going to come back because um so so there's this they can't figure out which demon has it. And he's like, well, there's millions of demons. Which one has it? And he's like, I don't know. Well, let me summon them all. And then all of a sudden it's like, demons come to me. And then like the next page you open up is a two page spread of just all these fucking demons. And I'm like, what a wild thing to draw. Like there's so many little details in that you can look through the crowd and see all these different demons. I bet there's references to other demons. Like I know actually early on when he first comes in, there is a direct like demon reference from another comic. Oh, Atrian, um, yeah. Yeah. The which, demon, yeah. I don't know who that is. Like, I don't know who that he's is. He's just but. like a, yeah. He, he's not super, if you don't read a lot of DC comics, he's not super notable. Yeah, so it's cool to see, uh, like, they're threading in all these references to other comics. So anyway, then he gets, uh, he ends up having to challenge this demon to get back his helmet. And the challenge takes place at the Hellfire Club, which made me laugh. I was like, Hellfire Club, like, if you just watched the most recent s- season of Stranger Things, is the name of their D&D club. Um, which would have been in like 86 or something. So it would have predated Sandman. So they couldn't have been saying that, you know, he was inspired by it, but still, I just thought it was cool. It was the same name. Um, Definitely could have been a reference by the filmmakers. though, just wanting to put a name like that in there. And then they, they eventually find this demon and they have this like sort of like 
battle of the of like it's like a logic battle like one-upsmanship kind of it's it's so so the game is you say what you are and then the other person says what they are in the way in which the new thing that they are defeats the thing that you said you were and then your job is to then say you are a new thing that's going to defeat the thing that they said um so it, it, it plays out and they go back and forth go back and forth and eventually it's like you know i'm the universe i am nothingness and then uh uh i think morpheus ends up winning by saying that he's hope um and that ends up being the thing that that beats beats this demon because the demon's like i'm a nuclear bomb i'm this i'm that and then he's like i'm hope and it's just like something that's kind of undefeatable yeah which is a cool message right but um after that he gets the helmet and there's this interesting moment where he's like thank you so much you've been a great host (laughs) lucifer uh i'll be leaving now and lucifer's like why would i let you leave and um you're surrounded by demons and and uh he has to say like yeah you could you could kill me but what good would hell be? What good would all what good would all the souls of the damned be if they couldn't dream of heaven? Um, and because of that, they kind of part and let him leave. Um, and I thought that was just a cool like thought, right? Like it, hell is nothing if you don't have the ability to dream of something better. Yeah, I like that a lot. Issue number five is called Passengers. Doctor Destiny escapes from Arkham Asylum with the intention of recovering the ruby. He's used previously to fight the JLA, Justice League of America. He does not know that the ruby actually belongs to Morpheus, and the two are set on a collision course. Okay, so we see him take this hostage with this woman, and he's riding in the car with her. He's such an interesting guy. Like, he's, I guess he's, he was, like, previously a villain that the Justice League fought. Um, he looks super skeletal. Him, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it was like an invention for this comic or if he was like for other comics. I don't know. But he looks super skeletal um, and like emaciated. And the idea is that he doesn't sleep. Um, and then he, so he's, he's, he's kidnapped this woman. He's in the car with her and he starts like telling her like his story and how he's been starved and how he's been held in this uh, asylum. And he kind of wins her over as she starts to trust him a little bit. She threatens that her, her husband's a hitman and that she'll have him killed. But then um, he arrives at this storage warehouse. And um, at the same time, Morpheus has arrived there as well. He's tracked down the crystal, his his like ruby, to this same storage facility. Through, gotta jump in here, through Martian Manhunter, which was oh, yeah, fucking yeah. crazy, of the Justice League. Again, I don't really know the reference, but yeah, it was because it's Martian, and I was like, what? It's fucking crazy. Martian Man- he's one of the coolest characters, too. I love Martian Manhunter. Okay, I, I didn't know who he was. I mean, I knew he was a character who has clearly been in other stuff, but yeah, that was pretty wild. Anyway, um, so he arrives there, and like I guess Morpheus touches the crystal, or the ruby, and it like sucks the power out of him instead of him being able to claim it. Seems like Dr. D had like done some things to it, kind of reverted it to like not. He's like, it's mine now. It doesn't serve anyone but me. Yeah. And so like even it's weird to think that he had somehow was able to experiment on something that um, Morpheus dream goes on to talk a lot about how like it's a piece of himself. He's imbued himself into it so much that like it is him basically. So for it to like not serve him was wild. Yeah, he was not expecting it. He and, and you know, this turn because he's spent this whole time convincing this woman that he's like not a threat and to make her feel sorry for him. And in, in through her, he's doing that to us too, right? The audience. 
And then he turns on her and he just shoots her. Um, he, he asks her, like, is your husband really a hitman? And she's like, no, he's a teacher or something. And he's like, eh, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. He shoots her. Um, and I was like, oh, fuck. Okay, so he goes full villain at this at this point. Um, and then he gets the ruby and we move into issue number six, which is called 24 Hours. And what a wild one this one is. This was my favorite one. This one stands out to me as one of my Maybe my favorite sure. one of all ten, but definitely my favorite up to this point. Yeah. Um, so, so good. So in 24, over the course of 24 horrific hours, Dr. Destiny unleashes impossibly dark terror on six unsuspecting people in a small town diner. Armed with Morpheus's dreamstone, Destiny can rearrange time and space and does so to dreadful ends in this eerie, nearly standalone issue. Um, it's so good. It's got this cool freaking construction of like hour one hour two hour three and he describes what happens and every time it moves through an hour something really different happens we get these like six different people set up there's this uh waitress who is a writer secretly and she's like writing down everybody's stories we get this um young woman who is a lesbian it seems like and um she has her own thing going on we get this like tycoon businessman who looks a lot like fucking trump um, we get, and there's like this younger guy and the woman he's with, and like, there's all these characters, right? In this diner and D comes in, takes up, takes up, uh, his seat in the, in the kind of in the corner. And it goes for a while before it's revealed that he's there. And, um, I, no one seems to notice that there's a skeleton sitting in the corner in like a funny way that comics are like. The guy looks like a fucking skeleton. <laughs> like he is. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think they do. I think they even mentioned something about it at one point. They're just like, "Whoa, he's you know hidden in the shadows. Don't worry about him," kind of thing. But I also think it's the influence of the ruby. Like he's he's already influenced all of them into dream states. Basically, it, it wasn't a problem for me. I just think it's funny. It's like no one comments on the fact that it's like a skeleton a with skeleton eyeballs, man. basically in the corner. He has like little wispy hairs and like a little bit of flesh. So he's not just bones, but he he's got like his face looks like a skull, and he's got these like teeth are all rotten and gross. He's, he's a horrific looking figure. Um, anyway, and then we, yeah, we move through these 24 hours and they're wild, man. Like he's, he's, he's altering, not just this diner, but everywhere, I guess worldwide is the implication. Um, and it's causing all kinds of pain. People are having nightmares. They're losing their minds, going insane, killing each other. Um, but then within this diner, he, he's like exploring different ways to essentially torture them. Any of those like moments really stand out to you? Uh, so many. Like, I mean, when the person's like stigmata, like they get like a nail through their hands, oh, yeah, like multiple like, times through the hands by the other person. Um, yeah, I mean, like, he starts talking about like how he because he's making their dreams like turn into nightmares and he's making them come true. And he, he's like talking about how like when their dreams are kind of boring, it like doesn't even do anything for him. Um, but then like whenever somebody has like a really dark dream, it's like, ooh, that gets me excited. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing that stands out by far the most is just how the the last that panel, like you're just going through all these crazy dreams and you're like, well, how are these connected and all this stuff? And then you get to that last panel where he's just like standing over their bodies. Yeah, there was a panel where he makes them all worship him and he's like being carried and he's written God in red on his chest. And like, it's so mad, like it's just it's just madness. Um, And then like the next time he's like, and then I decided to make them all like have you know fight each other like animals and they're like literally like beasts fighting you know and like he just he just uh, torments them in all these different ways um and i am so interested to see 
what this looks like in the adaptation. I hope we get it. I think we will. I think I saw a, a, a photo or something from in a diner and it had the different people standing there. And it was one of those things where it was like, I knew it was referencing something, but I didn't know what, because people were like freaking out. And so I'm excited. I think it said something about like, oh, this, you know, meet this waitress. She's a right, but she's also secretly a writer or something. And like people were losing it. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. So this kind of makes me, I'm curious about the adaptation. I think everybody is right. How dark is it going to be? That's my main question because the horror element of this comic, I love so much. It, um, it really makes it, it's, it's kind of scary to read because you don't know what horrific thing is going to happen next. And um, there are some pretty horrific panels where it's drawn in a pretty gruesome way. And people's faces melting, someone's head exploding, like uh, someone's been decapitated. Like, Yeah. I have a feeling that we're going to need to temper a little bit of expectation. But then again, who knows? Yeah, I'm, well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I don't think it's going to be this dark. Gaiman is actively like heavily a part of it. So For sure. Let's see if he can, you know, let's see what we were able to get. You know? And also it being this dark doesn't mean it, it, you know, if it's not this dark, that doesn't mean it's not going to be good. Right. You right. know, but it is a, it is a characteristic of it that I love. Exactly. And it's like that. I, I'm more worried about that. Like, I, I know like it's the internet. So everybody is all up in arms about casting and like this person doesn't look like how I want them to look. And it doesn't look like the, exactly like the character out of the comics. And like, I think we're both of the camp of like, we don't really care about that. It's more about the character's um, essence and role in the story and the feel of the, uh, of the character being represented. It doesn't matter if the actor looks like that so much to me. Um, but I do care about that, this kind of stuff. Like I want, I want the horror elements. It's not to say I'll be up in arms and I won't like it, but I'll be kind of bummed if it, if there's not a real darkness that the that the show is able to engage with i hope so i really do yeah all right man that was a good one um at the very end we see uh morpheus show up to dr destiny and he's like what have you been what what have you done and uh i think one point it's like why have you done this and he's like because i can um like that he's he's just lost it he doesn't care he's just tormenting people he wants to be worshipped like clearly he wants to be a god he's just on this power trip um, really awful person. <laughs> and uh, let's move into issue number seven. Issue number seven is called Sound and Fury. Morpheus finally faces off with Dr. Destiny for the final piece of the Dream King's objects of power, the Dreamstone. Warring across the landscape of the Dreaming, the two beings wage psychological war with the fate of the universe hanging in the balance. Okay, uh, so they're in the Dreamscape. He, he basically tells him, he's like, yeah, if you want to do combat with me, you got to come to the Dreaming. And he, and he yeah. creates this portal, and then they walk through it, and, and he's in the Dream world. And like as soon as he's like, yeah, I'll go in there and fight him, I'm like, oh, you're done, dude. Right. How are you going to think you can compete? But great space to, to draw a comic book in, you know, like what kinds of crazy cool stuff can you do? There's this one moment that stands out to me in my mind where uh, Dr. Dr. Doom, Dr. D or Dr. Destiny is sort of like streaking along the skyline and like the, the you can see like a ripple of like dream behind him and a different dream in front of him. And he's just like got the ruby in his hand and like super striking in the way that it can be super fluid where we are is fluid. What's going on is fluid. And then we're like jumping into these like black and white white frames of like people sort of torturing themselves and stuff at times or like just different different offshoots of like the thing that Dr. D was sort of getting satisfaction from. Well, and there's also this like I didn't know where these dreams were coming from. So like when he first arrives there, he basically emerges as Caesar 
and he has these people around him that might be the Hecate, like might be the the witches. Seemed kind of like it might have been them. And but yet he's dreaming, and in this dream he's Caesar, and he's being worshipped. Um, and we get a and he looks all like he looks like himself, but actually with flesh, and he looks like a person, not like a skeleton. Um, but then he like realizes that he's dreaming, and he remembers that he's going to fight Morpheus. Um, and then it, he he basically pursues him, and it seems like he is actually besting him for a little while because of the power that's in the stone. It has absorbed some of his uh, dreams' power. Most and of it, yeah. So he's actually super powerful with this thing, and um, he's in the process of beating him, and then I guess he just gets like over uh, confident, and he ends up breaking the stone itself. He thinks that that will fully break him. I think he thinks it's they're connected in a way to where if he snaps that, like the power will leave him entirely and he'll be defenseless. But it actually just releases his powers back to him. Yeah, and then at that point he's done. Yeah, he's got all of his power back, maybe even more than he had previously. Um, and well, he's yeah, he's back to himself again. He has all three of his artifacts. True, and before no, but because one of them's destroyed, the ruby is is gone. Oh and, right, yeah. And when he crushes the ruby, all the power that he initially took from himself and put into the ruby is restored to him. So not only is he as powerful as he used to be, he's as powerful as he was like way back before he even created the ruby. I also love how he treats um, Doctor Destiny as well, where he like sort of then then he becomes like insignificant. They have these massive white panels, and he's yeah. there's nothing there but him. And then he decides he show you know dream shows up takes him under his wing and basically is like you know we're gonna put you back to to the way you were yeah back in arkham asylum with uh with scarecrow <laughs> right yeah Who's we didn't there? even mention that scarecrow <laughs> yeah. great villain great just random batman rogues gallery villain yeah. just like fucking pull out in arkham asylum hanging, it's like hanging in the room with him like he's being hung or something and he's i like, mean and like so that's some of the most fun parts right like people talk about comic books and i think they get a sense of some of the the rogues gallery stuff of of spider-man or batman like they're some of the most interesting parts to see like this like virtuous person come up against this like crazy person that comes up with these schemes and like scarecrow is one of those and and there's even a joker reference he's like tell joker da, 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 you know so it's kind of fun and i can see someone reading this and being like i do want to know a little more about some of this dc stuff and kind of digging into some of the you know killing joke is an alan moore batman comic that is like known to be ex incredibly dark and people you know love it it's one of the most one of the most famous dc stories i would say and so like this being a gateway into people checking out some of the superhero stuff it goes both ways yeah i mean it's so good and you're right like that is it, it's fun it's fun ultimately um so i was kind of shocked here that he shows him as much mercy as he does now he brings him back to arkham asylum and he said and it's basically implied that like this is a fate worse than death you're you're back in this prison yet i'm like people it's really shitty prison because people yeah. get out of there all the freaking time. <laughs> um, sure do. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, man. You inflicted eternal waking on this guy earlier just for like not letting you go because he's afraid of you. And then this guy who tortured all these people and fucked up the entire world with your dreamstone tried to kill you, almost did. You're just putting him back in Arkham Asylum. Like it felt like. He got off pretty easy for what he did. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with either thing happening in a vacuum, but comparing the two definitely makes you feel like, why did he fuck that guy over so much and didn't care about this one? But uh, it is cool to see the merciful side and sort of the ancient side of him to where he's like, you know, even though you almost fucking killed me, it doesn't really matter because now I have my powers back and I'm 
all-powerful. And this is sort of the first time I think we're seeing a glimpse at some of the stuff that going forward I'm excited to see. Like his role with all these other uh, eternal people. What are they called? The Endless. Well, speaking of that, you've set up the next issue well. So issue number eight is called The Sound of Her Wings. Yeah, this is potentially one of my favorites this one is this is this is the one that i was like well i don't know maybe because this one's also extremely good so we spend a day with dream as he catches up with his older sister death in search of inspiration when the king of dreams is depressed uh can even a pep talk from death set him on the right path some of these synopses are kind of funny on this website i'm using but anyway um yeah so we get the opening and he's sitting in this like really bright area and he's feeding the pigeons And death comes walking up to him and I immediately was like, oh, this is iconic Um, because I know the character is iconic and the meeting of the first time, at least that we're seeing on the page um, between these two characters. So cool. And I love their chemistry. She's so fun and like unexpectedly positive and um, she looks super goth, but she's like, I don't know. She seems really like full of joy and just like life. Um, which of course is the complete polar opposite of the like Reaper, you know, skeleton, Dr. Destiny, honestly looking figure that we're used to for death. Yeah. It's really interesting to see. So dream is like down in the dumps and going in, going around and seeing what death's job is. He sort of gets good perspective and understands like people's roles and what motivation is and what, what their existence means and stuff. But Man, if it wasn't just like really thought provoking to see death go around and and like in some ways provide a mercy for some people in some way. Nobody's excited to see death, but uh, the way that it like gave Dream a good perspective on they should people should be happy to see death in a way like she's she's doing her job. I don't know. Did you did you kind of draw some of the same stuff from that? Like where she's happy and doing her job and people are sad to see her, but she's kind of merciful about the way she does it. No, I mean, there's definitely a message there, right? Like it's uh, because dream is like, why are people afraid of her, but not of me? Because it's just as natural, like you, you, you know, you're not afraid of birth. Everyone does but, it. You know, yeah. it's something everybody does, and the way she treats it every time was pretty moving. Because um, we see her going through her day, and she's just like collecting souls, essentially. Right. Um, the ones that were tough were the baby, the baby, and the the kid who's like running across the street, who yeah. we actually got some interaction with. Yeah. Um, like playing ball and like just getting hit by a car. Like, yeah. I mean, they're all sad in their own way, but yeah. And then like the way like she like the, the person comes out of the body and then is able to look back and like the baby says like this is all I get and like that was so sad. That was really sad. So like you see the like tragedy that she deals with, and yet she maintains this like eternally positive feel right like i don't know she's she doesn't get sad about it yeah it's incredibly interesting to think about i just don't know where i land on like what's the reason why is she doing it yeah well we don't know like that's what she's such an interesting character like i want to read more about death um i i gotta mention so she has this really iconic design um Mm -hmm. and i did read that she was based off of this singer uh her name is cinnamon hadley was the inspiration behind the character design. Um, she uh, was the singer who she says that she designed her own clothes. Um, her look was she got into this like scene, this music scene, and she wanted to look different and interesting. Um, she would ha- kind of dress in a way that was very stage-like. She was a ballerina, um, but then she got into this death rock scene and she wanted to do like theater-like makeup and costumes. 
so she did her hair in a very like over the top way. Um, and you know, I, I can see that at some point, I mean, whether it was Neil Gaiman or one of the artists who was actually des- designing the way the character would look or, or a combination of the two, they were inspired by this look. I think combination of the two. I have an interesting side note okay. based on that story. Uh, I did just a little bit of reading and I had heard something about this before because it's David Bowie, but, um, supposedly in the book, hanging out with the dream King, a book consisting of interviews with Gaiman's collaborators. One of Gaiman's artists, Kelly Jones, states that Lucifer's appearance is based on that of David Bowie. Quote, oh. Neil was adamant that the devil was David Bowie. He, he just said, he is. You must draw David Bowie. Find David Bowie <laughs> or I'll send you David Bowie. Because if it isn't David Bowie, you're going to have to redo it until it is David Bowie. So I said, okay, it's David Bowie. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, I just wanted to outline a little bit, going back to death, like I wanted to outline... Her look is iconic. Obviously, you know, hearts were one. Everybody falls in love with her. People get super attached to this character. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys think she's like the hottest thing in the world, I'm sure. Um, but beyond that, I'm sure a lot of women did as well or identified with her, styled their looks after her. Um, she's, you know, you see cosplay of her all the time. And they've changed her, right? Like they've cast a black woman to play her in the show. And the internet noticed <laughs> and the internet, you know, a lot of people on the internet got upset. I'm sure many, many people don't care or were supportive. Um, but as often happens so much, uh, that gets drowned out by the people who are negative about it. Um, and it's a shame because we don't know what the performance is like. Um, we don't know, you know, I think it's more important to me that she feels like this character than it is that she looks just like her. Yeah. Okay. My attachment only goes as far as a week ago when we were reading this yeah. and everything. But exactly, the character doesn't th- that doesn't feel as important as the, anyone would make it seem. I it guess. really that, doesn't. that's ridiculous to me that that people would be upset about that. Yeah. So if you're looking for us to get up in arms about that, this is not the podcast for you because we're not going to be. <laughs> if she nails the, this performance, yeah. I want to hear all of them uh, silence. I mean, they all should be silenced already. But, oh, they won't be. I can tell you. Right. I can tell you that. But but I, you know, there's a reason they're doing it, and it has nothing to do with the character. Yeah. So. Let's just. Say yeah, it has nothing to do with that. Let's move on to ep- to uh, issue nine, which actually starts the next volume, um, which is called Dollhouse. Um, next issue number nine, though, is called Tales in the Sand. And uh, this is one you referenced earlier. In an undisclosed time and place between two tribesmen, they travel into the desert for the last step in the younger man's initiation into adulthood. According to the tale, where now there is a desert, the tribe once dwelt in a magnificent city ruled by a beautiful queen named Nada. Uh, she or Nada, I don't know how to say that one. Um, she was a wise and just ruler, and the people prospered until one day when a stranger arrived, and the two fell in love. But the stranger was no ordinary man, and that changed everything forever. So, this one is my one that I'm like, I don't, I don't know about this. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, we haven't seen many characters of color. We get these tribesmen. It's I don't know. It's I, I just can kind of see that this is a bunch of white people writing this story. Um, it's they're you know the only characters of color we've really gotten at this point are <laughs> this. It's very like I don't know. It's a tribe, right? It's very right. Uh, I don't know othering. I I agree. Yeah. It's a little weird, but ultimately the story at its heart is interesting and it's important, right? It's the idea of this like princess. This happened a long time ago. They've told this story over and over again through time. It's just passed on through the ages. So we're introducing that interesting sort of storytelling moment. 
Obviously, some of the details have been changed over time, it seems like. People have gotten them wrong or adjusted them to fit their preconceptions. Um, so that all is is, is intriguing. Um, and then the idea is that Morpheus fell in love with this princess and vice versa. Um, this is very. This feels very removed from Dream, though. Like this is very the perspective of these tribesmen talking to each other, and then we get a little bit of like the princess's perspective as told through the tribesmen, and only then do we see Death, who even looks completely different, um, interacting. And we don't know what the like truth is behind this story. Yeah. I think it's safe to say. I think it does a lot of interesting world building. I do think that there is a sort of unfortunate side effect to ha- to having these be your first people of color and the way that it's being set up to sort of serve a story more than tell their story um so yeah unfortunate part aside uh i think that the idea this oral storytelling from person to person and the way that story is being important this is the first glimpse that i think we have is at that well, one of the larger glimpses we have so far of this idea of storytelling and passing it down and the importance of story and and then obviously the the inter- we're also getting an understanding of like the interaction between mortals and these like endless people and the way that like they can't sort of coincide and live lives normally together yeah and- they're not allowed and in fact i th- the city is destroyed by the sun by the sun which maybe is like a meteor, I don't know, but like it's destroyed because of this union and how it goes against all natural law. And I'm like, when I hear this, I'm like, well, this is coming back. <laughs> this is going to be something. Right. That's someone, that's a different entity doing that to dream, right? Yeah. Which we, we learn later uh, in the next issue, you know, this is the implication at least, but yeah, I mean, um, there's also this bizarre moment where she like she like stabs herself trying to take her own virginity so that he yeah. won't want her anymore. And like, yeah, that didn't work. Super that well. was kind of the stuff that was like, Ugh. and then like there's this whole thing about circumcision and becoming a man. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know about this. This is pretty icky, and I don't know. <laughs> so some of this stuff just didn't hit me the right way. This is probably my least favorite of all the issues. Um, not to say that there wasn't important stuff going on here and, and stuff that is interesting going forward. Um, but yeah, let's move on from this one into our final issue, issue 10, which is called The Doll's House. During Morpheus's incarceration, four dreams escaped his realm and are now loose in the waking world. At the same time, a young woman named Rose Walker searches for her little brother. As their stories converge, a vortex is discovered that could destroy all dreamers and the world itself. Okay, that's... Um, an interpretation of what happened here. Yeah, it's also but getting a little bit ahead, I think. It seems like it's getting a little bit ahead, talking about what's going to come from this. But let's back up. So I'm not sure exactly whether it's this issue or the previous one, but we get introduced to... Um, Desire. Desire. Yeah. One of the Endless. And uh, Despair, who is the twin the twin sister. Um, although, so Desire is genderless. Um, is specifically said, and takes the form of whatever you desire most, I guess. Um, and Desire seems like maybe kind of has it out for Dream. Something. And there's a reference to Nada and how um, this Princess Nada, who previously Dream fell in love with, it seems like maybe Desire was kind of behind that, making that happen. And then now there's this new, there's going to be a new potential uh, person that's going to connect with with dream and maybe desires behind that as well. And then we immediately get introduced to Rose, which makes me think maybe it's going to be Rose. Rose. And then, and then, you know, in, in the dream world, we're getting dream and his associate. I don't know who that guy is, but he, 
something that like that. Yeah. yeah, I think it's Lucian. They are talking about a vortex, and he's like, "You need to be careful." And there's these missing, these missing like nightmare demon people, basically. Yeah, these pieces of the dream world that have gone missing, and I can't remember all of them, but like it's a different, it's a, like a smattering of different things that are missing now. And I'm sure this is going to come back as we're figuring out what happened to each of them. Um, you know, so I'm interested to see what goes on with that. Um, but then, yeah, at the same time, we get this story about this, this woman and her daughter who've flown to England, um, to meet up with somebody who they don't know who it is. It's a mystery. And they get picked up at the, at the airport and they're like, yeah, we're going to go drive to meet her. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) I wanted to ask you, what's the percentage chance that you would accept a mysterious, if someone sent you a ticket and was like, I'm going to fly you out to England. No, uh, no further details. Other than I want you to come out here. You're going to meet with me. I'm not going to tell you who I am. And, you know, here's a ticket. I'm going to buy it for you. Percentage wise? Yeah, it, percentage wise. What's the chance that you accept this? Is it 1990 or is it 2022? Right now. Okay. I would say there's like a 20% chance. Really? Yeah, I would think mine's, about it. Mine's a good zero. Good zero, yeah. <laughs> I, I There's just no fucking way. If you wouldn't tell me who you are. I've listened to too much true crime. <laughs> I'm going to be fucking eaten. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be the main course in a cannibal ritualistic murder. It's not going to be good. Like the idea that it's going to somehow be a good thing would never enter my mind. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. I, I think, I think I would, if I started to feel like I'm, I'm not, I mean, you know, I could get chloroformed at any time, but if I get over there, if I get over there and I feel like I don't want to go with this guy who's driving me in a limousine or whatever, I just, Go have a European vacation. I don't know, man. You're gonna get trafficked. Yeah, You're, it's gonna it's gonna happen. It might just, happen. Might lose a kidney or something. Like not gonna be good. Um, but but they say yes. Um, <laughs> they fly out there and they're like, oh yeah, I guess we'll go meet this person. Oh, it's a woman. Okay. Um, and so they they get out there and they find that this is this like old home, right? And they bring her in here, like like a home for elderly people. And uh, they bring her in. Uh, they bring them in and they meet. This woman who dun, 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 is actually Unity Kincaid from earlier, and she is now awake, and she reveals that she is the grandmother of Rose, and so the mother of, of this woman. While she was asleep during this like sleep that was induced by a dream being captured, she was raped and had a yeah. child completely asleep the entire time. Yeah, which is fucked up. Really fucked up. So it is kind of a horror story, so some fucked up shit's going to happen, I guess. Um, I'll, be, yeah, I'll be curious to see how they handle it. Um, who did it? I don't know. Like, we don't know the details yet, right? right. I, I assume at some point we're going to learn. Yeah. She reveals to, yeah, her her daughter and granddaughter. And then her granddaughter, Rose, walks away after and, like, sort of goes in the room, sees the witches. And, and then they give sort of, they, they're speaking and she doesn't know what's going on. And she asks a few questions and they're like, you asked the wrong question. See you later. You should have asked about these things. You should you would have got some good details, and then she goes away. Yeah, it's so fun. Yeah, and then it's a broom closet. <laughs> yeah, I, I that's really interesting. This Rose character uh, feels like it's going to be important going forward. She's got this cool like rainbow hair. Um, I don't know. I just I just like her attitude. She's you know she seems like someone I'm going to enjoy reading about. Um, and, but yeah, we don't really know exactly what her role in the story is yet. We do keep hearing about this brother, who we haven't met, um, and. Yeah, this is more about establishing this parentage um, and, and you know, her coming to believe that she is actually her mother because, you know, at first she does not believe that. Yeah. This is where we get that rotational text that we both love so much where all of a sudden we're reading it vertically. She's dreaming about Morpheus um, 
I think as he's go as he's learning about the nightmares that vortex. have gone missing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And, that's what it is. Yeah. And and yeah, and potentially the vortex. Um, I've been mentioned. I think there. all of these things are connected to you know desire puts on a ring that then uh, unity gives to the granddaughter. So there's the ring. There's the vortex thing being talked about, and she's it's like seeing an am analyte or analyte or something. Yeah, it has I like wasn't a, familiar like with archaic, the word. Yeah. It's just archaic word. Um, and that, that's one thing I've noticed is that like Dream does use these like super archaic phrases sometimes and, and words, which is cool. So that's sort of our stopping point. Yeah, we're, we're kind of left on a cliffhanger. Yeah, here. that's the final one. It kind of is a cliffhanger. We get a mention of this Corinthian that she needs to be uh, afraid, like worried about, but we don't know who that is. And then the last the last page actually of this chapter is like potentially it, what I assume is somebody about to murder somebody or somebody's captured. And I think it might be the Corinthian. It seems like it. So we'll find out who that is. TBD. So we're going to stop here on the comics uh, themselves. I know it's a big cliffhanger and we don't even know what's going on next. We've only seen death once. Like, I'm really interested. We've seen her reference a few times, but um, I know there's some bullshit uh, people getting mad, which I mentioned like casting stuff. This one just makes me laugh. People got upset that a non-binary person was cast to play uh, Desire, who is genderless in the fucking comic. People got upset about that? People got upset about it. I remember seeing Game... I thought you were going to say the opposite. I thought you were going to say people got upset because somebody who was not non-binary played Desire. Nope. Wow. People got upset that a non-binary person got cast and they called it woke and they called it, you know, so anyway. This was fun, man. I really enjoyed reading this comic. So into it. Um, I know that the adaptation is going to be quite different, um, but we have heard that the first season of Sandman is going to roughly coincide with the first 20 volumes, the first 20 issues of uh, of the comics. So that's our plan. We're going to cover this. Uh, the entire project is going to be three episodes long. We're going to next week talk about the first five episodes, I believe. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not actually sure. I need to look at first it. Half. Half, the first half of the Netflix series which is coming out soon. Very excited. And then uh, we will return for a third episode where we will read the final issues and watch the final episodes and sort of compare and contrast and arrive at the ending of this section together. Um, And then we'll take a vote on which we ended up liking better, whether we ended up liking the comic or the show better. And I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to be a tall order for the show to be somehow better than this. It's possible. Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm going to leave myself open to it. Um, but man, dude, I love this. And I'm, I, I, not only do I am excited to read the, the, you know, the rest of this book, but I want to get like all the rest of them now, man. Like I want to read all, all 75. I'm super into it. This I is think really good. This is going to be a situation where we may, you know, if this, if the show continues and everything like that, we might come in with prior knowledge next time. Maybe, maybe I'll hold off. If I, if, if we know we're going to get a season two and season two is going to cover the next volume, then like, uh, maybe I'll wait to do it then, yeah. you know, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Yeah. I've been blown away by this so far. I cannot wait to read more. Yeah. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, Apple Podcasts especially. We're getting so close to 100 uh, reviews, and I'd love to get there. So let us know that way. You can also connect with us on social media. We're at Ink to Film on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. We're all over the place. Oh, we're on Goodreads. You can join us there. Um, you know, that is an awesome way to connect with us and talk to us and let us know you like this thing. 
yeah, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have many different things there, but we put out a bonus episode every month. And we actually just released a bonus episode days ago about um, a documentary called Hodorowsky's Dune or Jodorowsky's Dune, which is uh, an un- supposedly the, the greatest film never made. So definitely check that out. It's really incredible and super, super influential. Such a fun episode to record, too. I thought we got to talk about really cool concepts about like art versus commerce and capitalism and the the way these two things conflict. So that one was a ton of fun. If that sounds interesting to you, you don't have to have seen the documentary to listen to the episode. Uh, we'll talk about it for you and, and tell you about it, what goes on in it. Really cool stuff, uh, especially if you're a Dune fan, Frank Herbert fan. Also, if you would like to buy a copy of these comics, if we've like sold you on it, you weren't sure if you wanted to read it, I'm going to include a, our bookshop link in the show notes. If you click on that, you'll be able to purchase a copy of this you know, first volume containing these first 20 issues. And in using that link, you will support the podcast monetarily, which we would love to have you do. And it would help us out a, a ton. So please consider doing that. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with Netflix and the series. And, and I'm so excited to see what they do. Um, nervous, but excited. And I can't even imagine how people feel who've been like massive fans of this yeah. for, for decades. So I mean, if can um, you imagine if they do this correctly, if they nail this and it's their new Stranger Things or something bigger, maybe like it would be amazing. That would be amazing. Uh, I, you know, we'll see. And we'll be back next week to talk about it. So until next time, keep adapting.